You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, it's uh, time for truthful news. And Alhamdulillah, as usual, this uh, segment gives you the views and news and you need to read in between the lines. And uh, we join once again uh, by George Galloway, uh, who's uh, the king of mother of all talk show hosts. And uh, he may and his friends uh, will entertain us uh, this evening discussing many issues from Britain to around the world and what's really happening because George Galloway and friends they call a spade a spade so sit back and enjoy this evening's edition Bismillah the worst of all Joe Biden's take a quick look at this and on July the 6th had international repercussions beyond what I think any of you can fully understand the impact what happened and July the 6th had international repercussions beyond what I think any of you can fully understand. Well, I don't know if that's a Botox nightmare or whether it's a plastic surgery meltdown or whether it's some kind of stroke, but Joe Biden is in no fit state to run America, even less to run the world, even less to run a world at war. Joe Biden thinks that events in Washington happened not on January the 6th, but on July the 6th. And he thinks that it had international repercussions that none of us can understand, when in fact, in comparison to a weekday sojourn down the Champs-Élysées in France with a yellow vest on, it was a minor skirmish of people in buffalo hats and red Indian regalia trying to get through unlocked doors with the complicity of the security state, as is now becoming clear. Joe, it was January the 6th, not July the 6th, and it had no international ramifications at all. And whatever happened to your face? I'm not being unkind. I have said many times that this is elder abuse. His family, his party, his government is actually engaging on in cruelty towards an elderly man no longer in control of his faculties or his bowels, as His Holiness the Pope found in the Vatican uh, towards the end of last year. This is a man who sleeps with the nuclear football. He sleeps with a bag that contains the nuclear codes that could send thermonuclear intercontinental ballistic missiles into orbit, into action. He is the man that can bring humanity on this planet to a complete halt, a complete destruction of every living being and thing on this planet. Let's just hope he doesn't confuse the nuclear codes for his alarm clock. Let's just hope that stumbling in a hurry to get to his hourly visit to the lavatory, he doesn't trip over that nuclear football. This is a clear and present danger to the safety and peace of the world, never mind to the good governance of the United States of America. But even when he's not on screen, the things he's saying 
are increasingly unhinged. This week, he accused Iran of fueling the war in Ukraine because it is selling to Russia the drone technology that is being used in the war. But Joe Biden has sent $112 billion to fuel the war in Ukraine. Not only that, he sent Boris Johnson as his secret weapon to stop Zelensky from bringing the war to a close nearly eight months ago. Joe Biden is the man who is fueling the war in Ukraine. It's Biden and America and NATO, not Iran, that are fueling the war. How come NATO is allowed to send hundreds of billions of dollars and euros of weapons into the war in Ukraine, but Iran cannot sell drones to one of the belligerents in that war in Ukraine? What's the thinking behind that? What's the logic when you decide to make a statement like that? Have you no self-awareness at all? Are you allowed to send any weapons to anybody, but other people are not allowed to send weapons to anybody? Russia and Iran are partners. They have mutual defense responsibilities. They have treaty obligations. They are close relations. Why would one not be allowed to give weapons to the other when you are allowed to give all the weapons that the military industrial complex can produce? What's the thinking behind a statement like that? I'll tell you what the thinking is. Have you noticed? as I just have, that they have stopped talking about RTP. It's a while since you've heard it, so I'll refresh your memory. RTP was the doctrine devised by Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. What a couple, what a gruesome twosome. That they used, the doctrine that they used to attack Yugoslavia. They couldn't get an attack on Yugoslavia through the United Nations Security Council, so they invented a new set of rules, which they later called the rules-based international order. You don't hear anything about that now either. The RTP stood for Right to Protect by which any country had the right to arrogate to itself the right to protect any other people under attack or under threat of attack. That's the basis on which Britain and the United States and NATO got involved in the war in Yugoslavia to protect people that they themselves defined as being in need of protection. Why don't they use that doctrine anymore? Because of course, Russia would have the right to protect its co-religionists, its co-compatriots, 
it's Russian-speaking people in the east of Ukraine, indisputably, according to the uh, Council of Europe, according to all of the international observers, under ceaseless attack from the regime in Kiev since 2014. 14,000 people were killed. Would Russia not have a right to protect them under the Clinton-Blair doctrine of RTP? Of course they would. And therefore, they stopped talking about it. The rules-based international order, ditto, because the rules-based international order includes the right to protect. In other words, to step outside of international law, outside of the UN Security Council, and take unilateral or bilateral or multilateral action wherever you decide that the rules you have devised are being broken. Now, of course, it's all going disastrously wrong. I've just seen the front page of The Economist. I can't bear to open it. But the front page of The Economist still maintains on this day of all days that Ukraine can win the war against Russia. On the day that a Russian private military company, the Wagner Group, defeated NATO in the city of Solidar and is now, right now, mopping up in the catacombs of that city, that ancient city of salt, has now fallen not to the Russian armed forces, they're not even fighting there, but to a Russian mercenary group of private military contractors. That's how badly the war is going for Ukraine and for NATO. And of course, with the fall of Solidar, ineluctably comes the fall of Bakhmut, another ancient city riddled with catacombs, underground tunnels in which a fight to the death is this evening occurring. So much so that the head of the Ukrainian military has pleaded with President Zelensky to withdraw, if they can, from the kettle in which they are trapped in Bakhmut for fear of losing thousands of their soldiers on top of the 100,000, according to von der Leyen, or more, according to credible military sources, that they have already lost. And Zelensky has refused his own army chief's demand that the soldiers be withdrawn from the noose in which they currently are poised. And as somebody, I think Colonel McGregor, just pointed out on social media a few minutes ago, Zelensky will be lucky long before the Russians come if the armed forces of Ukraine don't deal with him, if his own generals don't deal with him, because while he is cavorting on the stage of the Golden Globes, they are dying in the most unimaginable horror. 
Don't look at the videos I've looked at. I beg you, don't look at these young Ukrainian men giving their lives for a coke-sniffing, cross-dressing, porn actor, billionaire, cavorting with his film star friends in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, at the Golden Globes. Speaking of Golden, let me bring up Gordon Brown. We call him Goldfinger because he was such a financial wizard. He sold most of Britain's gold reserves at the bottom of the gold market. He was a wizard as the Iron Chancellor, to be sure. Now, it pains me to say what I'm going to say because I have literally known Gordon Brown well since both of us were teenagers. We were, I was his chairman of the Scottish Labour Party. I was 26, he was 28. I have been in politics with him for 50 years. I like him as a person, despite all of our political differences. I respect his intellect, but his grasp of reality, his grasp of self-awareness has clearly now entirely deserted him because just this day he set out a whole manifesto of putting Putin on trial in a Nuremberg-style tribunal for the crime of making aggressive war. But Gordon Brown was effectively the number two in Tony Blair's government who paid for the entire bill of Britain's aggressive war, illegal, unprovoked war against Iraq, never mind against Afghanistan before it, never mind against Yugoslavia before it. Gordon Brown is as guilty as anyone on the earth of launching aggressive war as defined by the Nuremberg Tribunal. So if Vladimir Putin should be on trial, Gordon, what about you? Why wouldn't you also be on trial? Your war was illegal, according to the Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan. Putin's war is not illegal. It is legal to come to the defense of your compatriots under attack in a territory next door to you. That's what happened with Vietnam and Pol Pot. That's what happened with Tanzania and Idi Amin, and that's what happened in Kosovo, Gordon. It is not unprovoked to launch an attack on a country that is killing your compatriots, but it is unprovoked to invade and occupy Iraq in defiance of a decision of the Security Council of the United Nations. Iraq did not pose a threat to Britain or America or any of its neighbors. It did not have weapons 
of mass destruction. But you invaded it, and you are co-responsible for the deaths of a million people in Iraq. And you want to put Putin on trial? Gordon, pipe down. Go off and do good works in Africa. Stop drawing attention to the most grotesque blunders and crimes of which you yourself are guilty as sin, as guilty as any sin ever denounced by your father in that pulpit in Kirkcaldy. And you know it. It's written in every line on your increasingly haunted face. I've only got a minute to tell you that the rally, no to NATO, no to war, in central London on the 25th of February, for the cancellation, but we will find out in the court because we have begun the necessary legal action to secure compensation for the expenditure we had already made and for the loss of income that we would have made from that event. I'm talking transatlantic airplane tickets, Reverend. I'm talking European and domestic rail fares, Reverend. I'm talking hotel bills, Reverend. I'm talking lost book sales, Reverend. I'm talking all kinds of costs that are going to mount to many thousands of pounds that you will have to pay me, either before we get to court or in the court. And if we are in the court, we'll be able, through the process of discovery, to learn exactly how an event about which you knew everything in advance when you took our money in advance came to be cancelled. You were told in writing who would be speaking at the rally. You were told in writing the subject that would be discussed at the rally. You have no legal leg to stand on. You have breached a written, paid contract with us. And it's going to cost you dearly. Not to mention the blow to your reputation as the flagship liberal branch of the Church of England just off the Euston Road flagship liberal really you reverend have been got at whether you were got at by the government or got at by a foreign government or got at by the agents of our government or a foreign government or got at by the low-life hordes the black hundreds that infest with their excremental pro-war propaganda. I don't know. But as I say, we'll find out unless you settle well in advance. I told you to fasten you. And he disagrees with me. That's why his call has been prioritized. Mohammed, welcome. What would you like to say? Uh, I, hope, I hope we both can't disagree, George. It's been a while and uh, it's good to hear each other again. Go ahead, yes. Well, first of all, um, I do have a slight bone to pick with you, George, um, as much as we go back. Um, 
I, I notice often, not just on, on the Mother of All talk shows, but also on your tweets, you're very critical towards um, causes of recession, causes of um, uh, gas prices going up, causes of um, financial and economical difficulties, um, especially in the UK. And what, what, what every human has got to realise is there's got to be some form of sacrifice um, when trying to do good, when being against corruption, for example, there's got to be a form of sacrifice, George, so you can't have your cake and eat it. In terms of, for example, the economy, I would rather the economy collapse this completely if it meant that there'd be no corruption in the Middle East, that there'd be no corruption globally. I don't know if you can agree with me on this point, but you've got to Yeah, be... there won't be many takers uh, for that to manifest, oh, Mohammed. I hope you realise that. You would rather our economy collapsed uh, than that there was corruption in the Middle East. I understand what you're saying, but you won't expect the British people to agree to that, would you? Chaser of British people's votes. I'm not a chaser of uh, approval of people. I'm, I'm a chaser of integrity, of doing the right thing, mm. speaking to, to my creator, to Allah, not not engaging in any form of polytheism and not engaging in any, in any form of corruption. A quarter of the global's well, uh, sorry, a quarter of the global's um, crude oil resources, George, comes from Iraq. Um, so perpetual prices, you straight away should put your hand up and say, listen, let it be expensive, it's not a big deal. As an example, I'm not talking about natural gas, granted, natural gas, um, Russia is number one. Well, uh, yeah, okay, Mohammed, you're clearly financially comfortable and uh, are ready to pay the price, and that is uh, to your credit. But I can assure you that the vast majority of people in Britain are not financially comfortable, are struggling to pay their bills and uh, demand and have, I think, the right to a government in Britain that will act for the British people in their interests rather than in the interests of others. Thanks for the call, though. Raymond in Swansea also disagrees with me. That's why. He's been prioritised too. Go ahead, Raymond. Good evening, George. Good evening, sir. Let's say you could um, wake up tomorrow and have all your dreams come true. And how would you then... Yeah. Res what, what, OK, let's say Netanyahu's watching your show and then he wakes up tomorrow and says, you know what, George is right. We should just leave Israel. We should hand it back to the Palestinians. Join. Where, what do we, what, where do they go? Uh, well, my policy, uh, although I supported the Oslo Agreement, you may recall the Oslo Agreement, not many people do, least of all in Israel, uh, which was supposed to divide the very small territory, smaller than one park in South Africa. The Kruger National Park is larger than the entire territory uh, of Israel-Palestine, but was supposed to divide it. It's 30 years old and at least 25 years dead. So I used to support that, but I no longer do. I favor, as I did in South Africa, uh, an attempt to build a multiracial, uh, multicultural, democratic state in the area. And therefore, I don't care what you call it, Raymond, uh, you could call it Israel-Palestine, you could call it Palestine-Israel, you could call it something else entirely. Uh, you could call it the Holy Land uh, is uh, not a bad idea now that it strikes me. Uh, but uh, there will have to be 
a, a, a reconciliation of the rights of the Palestinian people who have been wiped off the map. Their country has been wiped off the map. Their people have been scattered to the four corners of the earth. And those that remain under brutal occupation, siege, annexation, are uh, growing in number and not going anywhere. And so unless you want endless conflict in the region, with all of the consequences of that, you should be ready, Raymond, to agree with me that you can't have an apartheid state in the 21st century. Everyone has to have the same rights in a 21st century country. You can't say that this group of citizens are first class, this group are second class, and this group numbering millions in the occupied territories, occupied since 1967, are third-class citizens. That will not last, is my point, Raymond. But what you're, what you're talking about there is some kind of utopian society which doesn't work anywhere in the world. doesn't matter how you dress it up. So well, uh, the question is, well, then, couldn't what, then countries your, perhaps like what, Iran or... Couldn't they perhaps take on the Palestinians that are within Israel as their own citizens? Sorry, that's my dog. What, 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 what do you mean take them on? Like make them leave their country and go and live in Iran? Like Islam, like it's, what you're describing sounds fantastic, but let's be honest, it's not going to happen. So, well, it certainly, certainly sounds more fantastic than your idea well, of no. actually emptying Palestine of the Palestinians and shipping them to Iran. What have they got to do with Iran? Well, you just said that, uh, that Netanyahu is going to go to war with Iran, potentially, causing yeah, the next but, war. No, war I'm a, no, I, no, Raymond, it may be a bad line. I'm trying to get your thinking here. Why, why would Palestinians go and live in Iran? Why? Why? But I think it's more, it's a more feasible prospect than perhaps, and I'm not saying that Israel gets to keep all of the Palestinian land that they got, but it, it's, it's cut up in half that there's clear designated borders. This is your country. This is your country. Do you see what I mean? Done. When's that happening? When's that happening, Raymond? Well, exactly. It's like the war in Ukraine, and it's like two different ideologies that, that go against one another. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, see, you're calling me utopian, but what you've just said is just as utopian. The, the Oslo Agreement is more than 30 years old, and not one centimetre of it has been implemented. The Palestinians are not free on one centimetre of their land as they were promised in the Oslo Agreement. So you're flying the utopian flag of a return to Oslo. I'm flying what I think is a better utopian future of a single Israel-Palestine state where every person has one vote, every person is the equal of the other, equal before the law, equal religion, and so on. Let's call it the Holy Land. That might be utopian, Raymond, but so is your idea. And that's for your nightmarish, nightmarish idea that the Palestinians, who, by the way, are 25% 
Christian and 75% Sunni Muslim and who are all Arabs should go and live in a non-Arab country called Iran. Now, that's not utopian, Raymond. That's bonkers. <laughs> I think you're right, but, but how many people have tried to resolve that crisis over the years, George? You know what I mean? Like Tony Blair went well, to do a mission in the early 2000s. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, yeah. why shouldn't we just let them All right, but you asked me... You, you asked me, well, we could, of course, if that's what you would like, but you're not just letting them do anything, are you? You're supporting Israel. Britain and America are supporting one side. As its attractions to me, there's 350 million Arabs, there's nearly 100 million Persians, there's one and a half billion Muslims, just letting them crack on with it has some attractions to me. But Israel has nuclear weapons because we permitted them and facilitated, enabled them to have it. Secondly, we are arming and funding Israel. So we're not just doing a Pontius Pilate here, Raymond, washing our hands of this conflict. We are a party to the conflict, aren't we? But I can't see how that can, because Russia wouldn't, Russia's got a good relationship with Israel. And so has obviously America as their main supporter. Do you see what I mean? But Israel, as has Taiwan, it's got a right to defend itself, hasn't it? No, I'm very glad that the Taiwanese people earlier this year decided, do you know what, we're not really comfortable how this is going, and they voted against. So I was really glad of that, but at the same time, they should, if they want to, have the right to defend themselves. And unfortunately, they are being bombed by Palestinians, so obviously they're only responsible for that violence of... Defend themselves with nuclear weapons against their own people in their own land whose brutal occupation is now almost 50 years in existence. What kind of defense would that be? Escalated to the situation. It didn't start off in, with, the, with that premise, did it? It's just that obviously there's a hard-line group of Palestinians against a hard-line Israeli government. It's not all the Palestinians, but there's a small number who continue to bomb Raymond, 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 one of those two parties is a nuclear weapons state. The other is not. Now, why should Israel be permitted to threaten all of its neighbors with nuclear weapons? Why? But... Nuclear weapons has always been a, a defence. They've not been used since okay. 1945. So, all right, all right, all right. So, should Iran be allowed nuclear weapons for its defence? I'll agree with you on that. That's yeah, shot so, you up, yes, should. Okay, we found a rare agreement, me and Raymond in Swansea. Both Iran and Israel should be permitted nuclear weapons to defend themselves.
Thanks, Raymond. Now the super chats are flooding in. Thank you very much to consult his therapist when his brother pushed him over. If my little brothers, Paul and Dominic, had to get therapy every time I pushed them over, they'd have been in Carstairs Hospital, that's the Scottish equivalent of Broadmoor, by the time they were 10 years old. That's from your good friend in Geneva. Thank you so much indeed for that uh, tremendous donation, which I'm told is almost £100. Thank you so much for that. He had to see a therapist. Uh, because his brother pushed him over. But there's no sign that he had to see a therapist when he killed 25 Afghans from the comfort and safety of a helicopter high above them. All of them caught on camera and all of them dehumanized by Harry as chess pieces. Although, as the Taliban just pointed out, does Harry know that the chess pieces are back in the palace? <laughs> I thought that this, more than any of the other revelations from Harry, that the only shots he regrets were the shots he didn't take in Afghanistan, probably put the tin hat on it. As many people have said, nothing has done more damage to the reputation, I would argue, to the, to the reputation for sanity of Prince Harry than that revelation. Because, first of all, soldiers don't talk about such things. Neither, by the way, do gentlemen talk about with whom they lost their virginity in a field behind a pub before being spanked and sent on their way. Gentlemen, don't talk about such things in public, leading, of course, a feeding frenzy amongst the tabloids to find the noted horsewoman that Harry had neither an officer nor a gentleman. He's gone rogue. I think he's gone mad. But you can form your own view about that at nine o'clock. The voting. Uh, the British government is in a state of disarray. The Prime Minister this morning thrice refused to answer a question, an obvious common or garden question uh, on the BBC as to whether or not he personally used the National Health Service. Given that he's a billionaire and that his party has driven the National Health Service to the edge of collapse, you'd have to question his sanity if he actually was still or ever using the National Health Service. But it didn't go down well because the vast majority of people in this country have no choice but to use a National Health Service that is truly at death's door. There's talk in the papers this morning, only a week after I myself hear from this platform, uh, hypothesized that actually the Tories are going to have to get rid of Sunak. He's a rich man's Liz Trusts. And I can't put it any more insultingly than that. Let's talk to a real expert from the corridors of power. Kevin Marr, a former Labour ministerial advisor and now a best-selling author and analyst, joins me now and not for the first time. 
is a very popular guest of ours. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Uh, Let me start with that, uh, Boris, uh, Happy New Year to you. Let me start with that Boris thing. Uh, When desperate Dan Hodges in the mail on Sunday gives over more or less his whole column today uh, to a discussion of whether or not the Tories are going to have to ditch Rishi, uh, there must be some rumblings going on at Westminster to that effect, no? It's, it's a little bit like, uh, I suspect being British Prime Minister these days is a little bit like being a junior officer at the Somme, quite frankly. Um, corporals becoming lieutenants um, in, in, the, in the blink of a, uh, blink of a, a bombshell. Um, this is unprecedented. We, we've not been in this, this situation before. I mean, there was, I think, some pause um, when the Conservative MPs went into to, to knife Boris Johnson that you couldn't replace a sitting prime minister that's won an election um, more than once that, that, that you know if, you, if you're going to do this once then it's, it's got to be Liz Truss and of course uh, 40 odd days later it was, it was Rishi Sunak so, 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 so they've, they've done something that's pretty much unprecedented in British politics for as far back as you, as you would like to go really um, and it seems that the bloodletting might not have ended um, but there's, there's still this this rich vein of speculation about um, Boris Johnson and a potential return uh, return bout, um, which, which you know, if you'd have said this a few months ago, you, you would have said that's just absolute uh, fantasy. But of course, Boris Johnson is is a, is a breaker of conventions in, in in lots and lots of ways, and the fact that he's still got outriders um, very credibly, um, I think, I think trying to plot a, a return a return um, to number ten for him um, tells you um, two things. It tells you that the British politics is in many ways. In, in a free fall at the moment, given the, given the welter of, of domestic problems that, that would befall any government. And it also tells you that Rishi Sunak is not the kind of magic bullet for the Conservatives. He's not the person that, that inspires um, great deals of admiration and trust, clearly, in his own party, never mind the country, um, with, with Boris Johnson still seen as a, as a kind of plausible contender, which is, as I say, extraordinary stuff. But um, that's where we are at the start of 2023. Well, uh, it's amazing to think that anybody thought that Rishi Sunak would be the magic uh, bullet uh, for anything. As they say, if Rishi Sunak uh, is the answer, it must have been a very stupid question. But uh, I'm actually reading uh, an early uh, part of uh, Johnson's hero, Churchill's life at the moment. It's about his time as Member of Parliament uh, in my own home city of Dundee, called oh. Cheers, Mr. Churchill. It's not a bad book, actually. Uh, and the, uh, the thing that struck me was that Churchill did all these convention-breaking things. He ratted and then re-ratted. He was a Conservative, then a Liberal, then a Radical Liberal, then a Conservative again. Uh, he, uh, he got sacked multiple times. Uh, from uh, the cabinet and was always plotting his return. He he went to the extreme of uh, going to the trenches in the First World War as uh, a battalion commander of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, they of of the charge of the Light Brigade, Ben Wallace's regiment. Uh, And he only did it and risked his life many times in the trenches in order to force his way back into 
The cabinet, having been sacked over the Dardanelles, um, Boris has only just gone on a book tour and for some big paying uh, speaking events, not quite the same. But you see my point that, uh, you know, rules mean nothing to the likes of Churchill or Johnson, neither in their personal nor in their public life. I think that's true. I think it, it reflects that remark of, of, of Napoleon Bonaparte about uh, bring me lucky generals. And I think, I think uh, you know, Conservative MPs will be saying, are we going to win the next general election? Which is, which is Sunak is the, the, the kind of classic managerial politician. He's a very bright, perfectly intelligent man. But there's nothing there that, that really inspires. Um, and... and you know, to, to mix to mix my quotes up, I mean, I mean, you know, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose, and 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 Boris perhaps wasn't brilliant at governing in prose, although he had people around him who who, who have managed to confect a reputation, obviously with with the vaccine rollout and one or two other things, that, that actually he has substantive things under his belt. Now, in in fine detail, some of that falls apart, but nevertheless, for the Boris narrative, um, it kind of works. That that here, here he was, he takes on the big challenges and has a good sense of positioning, even if in the small details, he's not great. Now, now, now Rishi Sunak is the kind of the exact opposite of that. He is he's obviously a detailed man. He's he's you know he's, he's working through ministerial boxes. So all the documents that civil servants shovel in his red box of an evening, Rishi Sunak is, we're told, assiduous at going through all these things in a way that Boris Johnson certainly wasn't. So so, so very much yin and yang. But, but Conservative MPs will be looking ahead 18 months and saying, we've got to have a general election in, in autumn 2024, pretty much at the latest. Um, is Rishi Sunak the man to help us cross the line and win another term in office? Or um, is Boris Johnson, with, with all his chaos that follows around him, still has that kind of political magic touch, um, a connection perhaps with the British public that Rishi Sunak just simply does not have. Um, and, and actually, that, that Boris is the person having won, you know, a, a big majority for the Conservatives, you know, in, in, in 2019. You can't take that away from him. An 80-seat majority from a government that was already in power and all kinds of difficulties under uh, David Cameron and Theresa May and all the rest of it. Johnson wins big, including this mythical red wall of, 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 of traditional Labour seats in the north of England and, and the east and west Midlands that all went blue for the first, many of them for the first time ever. So, so Boris Johnson's a bit of a lucky talisman for a lot of Conservative MPs who are looking and saying, frankly, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't be in this place anyway. So, so, so when it comes to a second hearing or, or perhaps a third hearing um, for Boris Johnson, there's, there's no doubt there are Conservative MPs and we're told um, the party grassroots as well that that would welcome um, Boris coming back into the, into the fray. So Rishi Sunak will spend 2023, um, I think, looking over his shoulder a great deal. He's got potentially a difficult set of local elections, rather than dreary. He's got an economy that's in recession and a, a pretty deep recession. We've got all the workings of Brexit and COVID, which are causing their own particular problems as well, compounding some of the difficulties that, that he's got. So he's not got a lot of good news lying around. He's got public services in crisis. I mean, the NHS, you know, facing an absolutely perfect storm of, of issues, problems, workforce issues, strikes, 
pay 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 um, disputes. Um, it's, it's already 130,000 vacancies in the NHS anyway. It limped into COVID very much undergunned under strength to begin with. And of course, coming out of COVID, what we've got is 7 million, um, a backlog of 7 million elective operations that have to have to take place. And, and you know, so, so, so public services are bad. The economy is pretty dreadful. The international climate is, is certainly not good. Sunak's got to kind of refashion a relationship with the European Union, which is still Britain's biggest export market as well. And, and he's got some very difficult domestic politics as well. And it, it feels almost as though, you know, this entry from hell is almost beyond anybody. But, but Rishi Sunak is selling himself as the man who can, a sort of, you know, disciplined, focused, problem solver. And it's whether that's going to be enough by, you know, autumn 2023, perhaps by the party conference season, when Conservative MPs maybe say, look, 12 months from this point, we're going to be in an election campaign for, for, our, for our political lives. Is he the person that, that instills that sense of leadership and confidence that he can get us through that campaign? There's a lot of them that already say he isn't, and we'd rather have the last guy back, or, or the one before the, the last person back. Um, and, and, and that's all grist to the mill, I think, for Boris Johnson, who will spend the next year making, I'm sure, the odd pointed intervention and, and probably making quite a lot of cash on the speaking circuit as well. Well, I was going to ask you that, Kevin. I mean, it's the $64,000 question, or we need to add a couple of knots to that nowadays. Uh, would Boris Johnson be open to coming back? Uh, after all, they didn't exactly treat him very well the last time he was there. Um, and he's now making a literal shed load of money. Would he be interested in returning? I, th I think he would like probably like a shot. Um, it's in the blood with, with, with people like Boris. He's a creature of politics. Um, you, you know, you, you could double the amount of money he's making on the speaking circuit and, 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 and offer him, um, the, you know, a chance to become prime minister again. And he, he would drop the speaking in, in a heartbeat because, frankly, he can always push it back to the kind of, to the, the kind of back end of his career anyway if he wanted to. I think, I think, I think he, he will see that his departure was not on his terms and I think the chance to do something about that is something often prime ministers don't get a chance to, to, to revisit. Um, they have to try and, try and settle the account in the memoirs. But I think Boris Johnson still feels that he's got some spring in his step and, and clearly has, I mean, you know, he clearly has a, a big um, block of support on the Conservative benches and, of course, in, in, in the party's grassroots as well. And if Rishi Sunak were to stumble seriously, and he's, you know, he's, as I say, he's got the entry from hell and he's bitten off a lot to chew and it, it's whether through 2023 he's weighed and measured and he's, he's either succeeded in, in stemming the problems in the NHS, lifting the economy out of the doldrums, sorting out the, the, the boat people um, crossings across the English Channel. They're either sorted or they're not sorted. And if they're not sorted, I suspect by the time of the party conference, these grumblings about his performance will get louder and Boris Johnson will keep positioning himself as the obvious replacement. Fascinating. Kevin Marr, as always, thanks for joining us. How you doing, George? Happy New Year, mate. How's things, OK? Happy New Year. Thank you. All good, by the grace of God. Great. Well, with regards to your poll, I'd like to start by saying I'm a huge fan of boxing like yourself, and I just want to see Harry and William fight it out, you know? And we pay for them through taxes, so it should be free on TV if they really want to fight. Um, but what, bare what, knuckle. I'm for bare knuckle. Exactly. I'm for bare knuckle, son. Exactly. The exactly. fight club. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally fight agree. Fight club at the palace. 
at the palace, yeah, at the palace car park, maybe. Who knows? In that big square they've got there. But anyway, <laughs> with regards to the uh, with regards to the uh, bookies, Ren, uh, it, 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 even staunch Republicans like me, I'm probably even bigger Republican than you are, George. Uh, I sympathise with the royals here. I mean, for the late Queen's grandson to come out with a diatribe of BS after she's died is as low as it gets. And despite my hatred for the royals, I actually feel sorry for Charles because his mother's just died. I, I, I've been through something similar myself this year. It was horrible. And for someone in his own family to come out with this nonsense is just as low as it gets. Um, the book seems to be written by and manufactured by a series of daytime television enthusiasts, uh, loose women fanatic, and, dare I say, erotic novel writers like Alistair Campbell, who you used to be at one time. I mean, at one point, it sounds like some cheap soap opera. At another time, it's the Oprah Winterly slash Jerry Springer show. And at the other time, uh, it sounds like 50 grades of shades of grey, or should I say 50 whiffs of a big skimming pile of bullshit. You know, anyone reading this book would realise the target audience are people who watch these kind of shows. I mean, small minor incidents are given dramatic embellishments purely for exaggerations. Now, it's interesting, a couple of, a couple of years ago, you probably won't remember this because it's in like the 2000s, and it's not my kind of music, but Simon Cowell, during the pop idol craze, made, made a comment saying that he could easily make Prince William into a crooner, into like a, um, a tortured soul type crooner, you know. Now, for years, the music industry and the media mongols have been trying to get guys like famous people, like politicians and famous people on effectively bear, lay themselves bare and uh, take the forbidden fruit. And unfortunately, Harry's taken the, taken the bait and he's suffered consequences for it. But it's even worse. I think it's even much, much worse than that. For starters, British soldiers who went to fight in Iraq, you know, a lot, a lot of them came back with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know. Some of them will never be the same again. And for Harry to boast about how many people he killed in Iraq, not only is hugely distasteful with regards to British and Afghan relations, you know, it's literally a slap in the face of those soldiers who put their lives in the line and, and suffered. Some of them died uh, for, 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 the, for the defense of our country, you know. And it just shows as well how massively out of touch, not just Harry, but the entire royal family are uh, with, the, with the rest of the UK, as far as I'm concerned, you know. They're not ordinary people. They're not ordinary people. So um, I think the most honourable thing Charles can do is just remove He's, their royal uh, titles. We have, uh, even removing the royal titles will achieve what uh, precisely? I've got to say, Simon, for a Republican, you sure have thought a lot about this issue of the British royal family. But I'm not blaming you for that because the public prints are absolutely chock full of it. I thought you put it very powerfully, very well. It's a Jerry Springer show. And the Jerry Springer, whom I know actually had breakfast with him last time he was here in London, uh, Jerry Springer knew the formula. Uh, and that's the formula that Harry and Meghan are uh, following. Um, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh. You say you feel sorry for Charles. No power on earth, no wild horses could pull me into position of feeling sorry for Charles or horseface uh, Camilla. There's no uh, way I'll ever feel sympathy for any of them. And from everything I know, and I do know quite a bit, uh, William's not as nice as he looks, you know. Uh, it seems to me that that uh, William is his father and Harry is his mother. So to that extent, 
This is Diana's revenge. It's maybe George Washington's revenge because it's all been wrecked by an American abroad. An American broad abroad. An American divorced broad abroad. An American who was a Roman Catholic and became a Protestant only to join the British royal family. You'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh at that one. Cheryl is in Oklahoma. Let's hear from Cheryl on the state of the National Health Service. Dennis, welcome. Hello, George, and uh, Happy New Year to you. And um, I'm phoning to say... And you, thank you. I'm, I'm saying how much I enjoy your your show. I think it's fantastic, and you you you, you speak the truth about everything, and it's really uh, wonderful. And I look forward to um, listening to you. You 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 make uh, lots you. of good comments, and it doesn't matter what people say about you, George. You, you're a good man. You really are. Um, yeah. I'm, Thanks, Dennis. I'm, I'm 81, George, and, and, and I'm exceedingly worried about the health service. I mean, it's one of, as you know, it's one of the best institutions uh, that we've got, and um, to have to wait and queue for wait for uh, two or three hours for an ambulance is appalling. I think, George, the, the only way forward now really is uh, for the Conservatives to admit that they've run out of ideas uh, and they, they shouldn't be carrying on in government. Uh, we should be now having a general election and let's have a change of direction. I don't know uh, what that direction would be, but it, it's, it's, it's awful the way the country's going. And can I just say, George, the other thing about it, you mentioned about... Um, um, your children um, about going to school and they're, they're teaching them uh, about gay uh, gay issues. I think you're dead right. Uh, they shouldn't be teaching children that at school. Uh, it, it, it's appalling. I mean, children, young children at the uh, primary school age should be learning about how to read and how to write and, and how to hold their soul. To read, write, and arithmetic would be a fine thing. Dennis, thank you. God bless you for the kind things that you said. I, I have no problem. Uh, as I said on Wednesday, I hope powerfully, uh, I was a pioneer of gay rights in this country, in Parliament, and outside to anything about sex at primary school, at the age of five, never mind at the age of eight. I don't want my children to be asked if they identify as uh, heterosexual or bisexual or Gay, I don't want them to be asked that. I don't believe they even know what that means or should know what that means. I don't want them to be taught about masturbation uh, when they are at primary school. I'm appalled, outraged at that idea. I don't want them to be introduced to the idea that there's not uh, two uh, genders, there's... 97 or 970 or whatever the latest uh, alphabet and, and numeracy stew uh, is claiming that they're... I don't want my children to be exposed to that. I want my children to be happy as children at primary school and maybe even learn a thing or two about reading, writing and arithmetic. Dennis, God bless you and... 
Okay, we leave it at uh, that, and uh, alhamdulillah, a lot of information uh, coming through, and uh, yeah, reading between the lines, and uh, as we know uh, that uh, whatever being said is, uh, yeah, the opinions of uh, George Galloway and friends, uh, not necessarily that of our radio station, Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah, Jama'a, so anything uh, that is, uh, you know, not uh, from us, please... Uh, that's a disclaimer from us, alhamdulillah. But uh, a majority of our things that said there, uh, we do agree with, you know, with Putin and all these other things. And, uh, you know, what's happening and the type of fiasco that is uh, being happening in this world. But alhamdulillah, alternative news at its best. I'd like to thank uh, Lucalo uh, for brilliant engineering this evening. And to all of you, yeah, for tuning in. Uh, keep it locked on to uh, Marcus Sahaba for brilliant broadcasting and uh, lovely nasheeds also interspersed. From the team and I, till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.